This week on Life and Faith. When you look at one in four Australian men having mental health challenges and and for young boys, how do they cope with it? How do they cope with the challenges and the grief of life? Because I say to them, like, every single one of us is going to have to deal with hardship in this life. I can't wave my magic wand and take that away from you guys. But it's like, how are you going to deal with that? Art is absolutely useless, therefore it's essential. It's not no more being, it's just no more of the ticking of the clock. There's a bit of health in every family, it's not all dysfunction. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX, I'm Simon Smart. Well today we're going to be focusing on young people education and formation, and the ways in which important and influential currents within our society might be pushing our youth in directions that are harmful, and also ways to counteract that harm. I might be sounding a bit vague here, and that's deliberate. I need to offer a content warning at the outset, because today we'll be talking about subjects that are not appropriate for children, and could also be difficult for some listeners. We'll be discussing the impacts of pornography on young people's sexuality, also issues around consent and assault, and importantly, pathways to young people thriving in every area of their lives, including their sexuality. My guest today works for an organisation called Collective Shout. Collective Shout is a grassroots campaigning movement against the sexualization of children and the objectification of women. The two defining things that I guess you could say we do is, is the campaign, so holding corporates, advertisers, marketers to account and policy to get to a point where we are not selling products that sexualize and objectify women and children. And then the flip side, which I am so privileged to get to do, is the education component and youth advocacy and working with young people, parents, schools, community organizations, faith-based groups to do this work. This is Daniel Principer. As you heard, Dan is a speaker and advocate for Collective Shout. He spends his time speaking at schools and to youth in various forums. And what's fascinating to me is the message he's offering up is getting a very warm reception. He seems to have hit a nerve and touches on something that people sense is important. I was particularly interested in Dan's assessment of the place of young men in our society. And we talk about that at various points in the conversation, which you'll hear. But I began by asking him about the particular challenges facing young people today and how they are handling those challenges. I think there's a couple. There's, first of all, if we look at culturally the world that they're growing up in, and I don't just say this, uh, I genuinely think it's never been harder to be a young person in terms of what they have in their pockets. And that's where we start our talks, by recognising that they're growing up with smartphones and therefore access to social media and sexualised media that for us is a social experiment where we're starting to see the consequences of that. And so I think boys have to demonstrate so much character and restraint and self-control to resist a lot of what I think are the harmful messages that don't necessarily appeal to their best natures. And so that's one element to it all. Yeah. It's interesting that we keep getting surveys that show young people, boys and girls, being really lonely now, even though they're kind of, in a sense, connected electronically and yet feel this deep loneliness. 
It is a tragedy and it's something that you see more and more through lots of research that continues to come to the fore that people are more connected but yeah, don't have that interpersonal and that sense of feeling safe with other people, having people that are there for them. Mm-hmm. And I think that plays into the other concern that I have for young boys is like if they are disenfranchised and, and what are the reasons for that? But then how do we actually integrate that into relationships, into communities, into a purpose, into, into things that are life-giving for them that allow them to bring out their best elements? And so I think that's a task for all people of goodwill and no doubt parents and educators are are doing that. And I'm trying to play my little part to help them aspire for something really meaningful for themselves. Now, reading up on some of this stuff, you you realize that boys are doing poorly compared to girls on a whole lot of measurements, things like educational outcomes, health outcomes, suicide statistics, violence, incarceration. Is this something you... Uh, conscious of as you'd go about this work? Yeah, it's one of the questions I ask the boys We, we in the middle of my talk and the main objective of the talk is to help them make sense of the culture that they're growing up in and then I ask them things when we get to the mental health and body image section about the messages that they might be receiving and if it's actually helping them to flourish in life and mm-hmm. when you look at one in four Australian men having mental health challenges and, and for young boys, how do they cope with it and how do they cope with the challenges and the grief of life? Because I say to them like every single one of us is going to have to deal with hardship in this life. I can't wave my magic wand and, and take that away from you guys, but it's like, how are you going to deal with that? And the tragedy, I think, for so many young men, including myself growing up, is that the avenues weren't healthy. They weren't relational. They were alcohol, drugs, risk-taking, violence is the way that we deal with pain and problems. And we're seeing that that's kind of the way that boys are, in a sense, socialized to deal with their big feelings. It hasn't changed much, has it? So that was the, the issue when I was young. But we like to think we're on this trajectory to sort of a more evolved sense of ourselves. And yet these problems remain. Perhaps you're even saying they're intensified. In some ways, yes, they are. And in other ways, there's differences because people are at home more. So we're actually seeing that young people are actually having less sexual activity than in the past. And, right. and that's actually because a lot of them are disconnected. But the type of sexual activity that they're having is usually a lot more violent and degrading. So because of what they're learning online. So it is this like it's hard to fully qualify that without a bit of nuance to look at what's actually going on in young people's experiences compared to the past. But I still think and I still know because I ask the boys, and I'm not going to say this on the podcast, I don't want to say these words, but some of the ways that young men speak to one another that socialize a kind of callousness where they can't have feelings, where you have to be tough, you can't be a wuss, like toughen up, can of cement, all that sort of stuff. And then I ask the boys, have you all heard this? And invariably, whether this is a regional school, an inner city school, co-ed, faith-based, doesn't matter. They say yes. And I ask them, and do you think that's helping you young men with your mental health and, and actually feeling connected to yourself and to others? And they say no. Mm-hmm. But it's having the courage to actually do something differently than that and actually break free from some of those restrictive shackles. Some of the statistics and some of the commentary around being a boy or a young man these days, there's almost a sense of shame attached to that sometimes. Is this something you'd want to address and resist, I imagine? Yeah, it's a tough situation that I find myself in because the reality is, is I have to faithfully represent the global research and the stories that I hear, which is in for the most part with what I'm looking at, there's a lot of harm being done by boys towards girls sexually in their relationships, in their interactions at parties, on the school bus, in the classroom. And so I can't shy away from that. 
And at the same time, I also recognize that there are so many decent young men and those aren't the stories being told. So I'm all for truth telling. I'm all for confronting injustices and harms where they may be in my sphere of influence. But at the same time, I recognize that there are lots of decent young men and also are we celebrating those stories? I'm not saying worshiping men for the bare Mm -hmm. minimum, but actually saying like there are actually lots of good young guys out there who maybe don't get a look in because they're not performing to these other kind of archetypal ideas of what it is to be a man in the world. Yeah. So tell me when you're dealing with lots of young people, what are the things that you notice about young men that actually give you encouragement? So I find, and this has just been my experience this year in particular, I am probably going in harder on the message. So just being, and what do I mean by that? I'm, I'm just giving the facts straighter. I'm just telling the realities, confronting some of the horrors of what's going on when we don't do sex and sexuality well between the sexes and some of the harms of that. And as a result, the boys really lean into that. They like the fact that someone has just spoken to them straight. I talk to them as if they're adults and people that I respect and that I want good for. And so they respond really well to that. They actually are interested in having someone say, oh, you've actually spoken about my experience, you know, like you're actually speaking to the world that I'm living in, Mm. which is what I try to faithfully do as best as I can, even though some days I feel like there's a chasm between me and them. (laughs) I'm sure you do it really well. I've got this feeling that people pour their hearts out to you a bit sometimes too. Do you have boys saying... I realize I'm not behaving well. Do you ever get that? Yeah, I've had a couple of really profound moments uh, that come to mind where I had a group of young boys out in the Blue Mountains who pretty much gathered up the front with me and almost, in a sense, wanted to acknowledge that they hadn't treated people well. Mm. And it was almost like they wanted to acknowledge that and they acknowledged that to one another. Mm. And that was a really profound moment. And then recently, first time in doing this work, I had a young man bounding to the front, like in front of his peers, male and female, saying, I'm quitting porn. I'm quitting porn because he realized that this was not something helping him to form good attitudes and beliefs about some really important things in life. Mm. And we're going to come back to talk about the porn stuff because I know that's an important part of what you do. But something you you said there reminds me that the group for young men can be a negative thing for sure. And we've seen lots of examples of that, but can be channeled in good ways too, can't it? Yeah, I confront the don't dog the boys, you know, the pack (laughs) mentality. So we talk about that. My son said that to me before. Oh, there you go. (laughs) And so we talk about that. We just put it all on the table. and, And at the same time, you're right. And again, I think of another story comes to mind where the boys had disclosed to me that there was this guy who was rocking up to parties, not treating people well, being a bit of a creep with the girls. And so they just stopped inviting him. So there was a sense that the pack got together and said, we're not tolerating that anymore and you're going to find yourself on the outer. Now, maybe there's other ways to restore someone, to educate someone and help them. But in that instance, there was this sense of, no, 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 like we're not going to conform to that. We're actually going to say that's not okay in terms of the little mini culture that we're creating amongst our friendship group. And I see that with lots of things with the boys and especially when I meet with some of the, the student leadership and they say that they know that they need to break that bystander effect and set new standards and it's about actually yeah modeling that and then kind of shifting that momentum to say like these are the things we want to be known for yeah it's like peer pressure in a in good a, direction agreed i'm all for it <laughs> <laughs> let's get more peer pressure tell us dan what is it about your story that's drawn you to want to speak to young people like this yeah, it's a great question. I, I think for me, I got snuck into an all-boys school in Perth last minute. I wasn't meant to go. I was raised by a single mum, and I guess I didn't always have access to seeing good male role models in my life. 
And at that point, going to an all-boys school, that, whilst there was good elements to it, I was a soft, sensitive kid. I'm still a soft, sensitive adult. Hmm. And as a result, you can imagine the kind of slurs and labels that you are thrown at every single day. Yeah. And so there was something in me in my mid-teens where I went, what is going on with the socialization of guys? Because it brought out the callousness. And talking about the pack just a moment before, where one moment someone was really nice to me one-on-one, the moment there was another guy to watch, they started to perform towards this idea of trying to crush you and elevate themselves to get some sort of social credit. Yes, and that, that has a long-term impact on people. Some of those very robust male environments, I came from one myself, they can have a lasting effect, can't they? Yeah, they can. And so I can't divorce myself from my story and then this work and then the other elements. And just for those maybe listening, you know, like this is a bit of a content warning is, you know, I've, I've sat with a lot of people who have experienced sexual assault, mostly women, some men, and those stories just stay with me. And there's a sense of if they want to tell their stories, I hope so. But my role then is as best as possible to faithfully try and, I guess, do something and and let those voices be heard, just like the voices of young people in schools that need their voices heard when they're dealing with some injustices in the way the world is that's not helping them. And so I guess collating those over the years has given me this resolve that says this is an issue that's not getting enough attention and we need to say something about it. Mm. The issue of consent is very much talked about now, not the least because of things like a petition that famously came out of some Sydney schools where young women started revealing really horrifying levels of sexual assault and mistreatment by young men. Consent training is being rolled out around schools, and this is something that seems really important. But it also seems to me we need something more substantial than that if we're going to actually make a difference here. Is that something you'd agree with? I certainly do agree with it and uh, have vocalised that both at parent community sessions and pretty much every media opportunity I'm granted to Mm. say I'm all in favour of consent and better education, but I don't think the issue that we're trying to solve is going to be addressed by a very narrow idea of sexual ethics that focuses purely on the choice of consent and doesn't factor in so many other uh, conditions and circumstances that would make for good or healthy or respectful relationships and sexual activity. And so there's a couple of people who I think are really speaking well to this, an African-American writer called Christine Ember, who's written in one of her articles recently that, you know, there are people who are having consensual sex, but they're not enjoying it. And it's not necessarily healthy for them or being beneficial for them, which provokes a question of like, well, what else is there that we need to consider in this conversation? And what sorts of things do you think we do need to consider? Well, I'm very sympathetic, of course, because of my work to the role of pornography in fueling sexual entitlement and a very dehumanized and detached vision of sexual activity that divorces us from personhood and intentions and an actual mutual desire. Now, that might sound like a, a mouthful, but what do I mean by that? Well, I think if we've got boys being groomed, and I use that word intentionally, and young girls being groomed by a porn-infused vision of sexuality, then they are potentially saying yes to things that they don't realize they maybe isn't in their best interest or is actually harmful to them. And to make that point, what I see in schools is instances where young women have actually been the victim of sexual harassment or sexual assault and don't know that because it's so normalized and tragically as well young boys have committed that and they don't know that that's actually what they've done because it's become so normalized because mainstream pornography 
is extremely violent and extremely degrading and they think that is normal and what the academics talk about is their sexual scripts are being warped by that. This is Life and Faith and I'm speaking with Daniel Principa from Collective Shout. He speaks to young people in schools particularly about consent, pornography and ways to develop healthy and life-giving relationships. I spoke to Dan about the pervasiveness of porn and how these days it's hard to avoid. He's very concerned about the impact of that and also the power of the porn industry. The internet is anxious to show us all pornography and the global porn industry is practically euphoric at the thought of children getting hooked at a young age and becoming consumers and then bolstering their profits. And so that is the reality. They're tapping into an innate part of us. Some people call it, you know, limbic capitalism. It's normal to be interested in sex, to have desires, to be aroused, but we are commodified in this process. And it's a disembodied experience of sexuality anchored around pixels where you're completely in control versus the vulnerability and the openness and the the give and take and the exploration and mystery that goes with how we've done sex previously. Tell us about the power of that industry it's very hard to counteract isn't it because it truly is a billions and billions of dollars right yeah it is billions of dollars most of the internet is pornography it seeps in everywhere i asked a young man who loves the work that we do and wants to get on board i said can you make a list because he's far more tech savvy than me i'm a luddite (laughs) i said let me know all the different ways you can access pornography that's not through a tube site i was blown away You know, the pervasiveness of it through Roblox, you know, like these kinds of things that parents think, surely not, you know, like, do I have to think about these sorts of things? And so it is pervasive. And if it is the primary way that people are learning about something very, very significant, irrespective of your beliefs, like sex is a pretty significant activity. And if people's first age of exposure for boys now is about nine or 10 and girls 12 or 13, like what are going to be the impacts of this? So I've heard you say that's the average, isn't it? That's yeah. not just... It gets as low as that. You're saying that's the average that's age. That's the average age of first exposure. For me, I was 10, 11 when I was first exposed to pornography. And that can be just someone shoving a phone in front of your face, can't it? Children aren't always searching it out. You know, sometimes they're being exposed. Sometimes they're just typing innocent things into the internet. But every kind of childhood show or toy has a counter pornography site made in its kind of reflection, which shows you the nature of this industry. And there's things I almost I don't even like talking about because it's so dark and so depraved when it comes to the exploitation that goes on. And I have friends and men that I really admire who've gone undercover and actually spoken to porn producers and have revealed the absolute horrors and degradation that goes on behind the scenes. As you've alluded to there, there's a real darkness to this. Would you describe it as a spiritual darkness? I would say it is the greatest evil I've ever confronted, some of these stories. And now I've got a pretty high threshold, hence I do this work and I have to hear a lot of things and I hear a lot of disclosures. But when I hear that people have willfully schemed to try and break the soul, body, mind of another person, in particular a young woman, to profit off that, I find that almost unfathomable. Yeah. I find that really, really hard to sit with. And for me, that is some of the most depraved things that I've ever seen in terms of read about the accounts of what has actually occurred there. Mm. And I think for me to take that back to our cultural moment and where we are is it's like, what does it say about a society where 
we are actually driving the demand for that. When you talk about pornography and the dangers of it to young people now, do you mostly get resistance to it or are people really wanting to hear more? Like, What's it sound like in the ear of a young person these days when, when you're kind of trying to say, no, this is terrible and we need to pay attention? For me, I think I've taken great comfort in how much the young people want to ask questions. When we do even parent community events, like we could be there all night because people are wanting to ask questions because I think we are tapping into just the realities of people's lives and, and negotiating this phenomenon. And so young people want to know. I was recently at an event in Sydney where most of the questions were directed at me afterwards because the young people wanted to ask about pornography. They wanted to understand what was happening. They wanted to speak about desire. They wanted to ask understand hookup culture and and are these things actually helping them to become the type of people they want to be and that's ultimately the question that we're asking for our young men and why I do this work is it's like is this helping you to become the type of young man that you want to be is it helping you to become safe and respectful and empathetic and kind and so the reality is there is an interest and there is an interest because I don't think we've really had a conversation about this. And it, for me, is the elephant in the room in the consent conversations and addressing the sexual assault crisis. Because everywhere I go, from a polite dinner party to a public forum, people have stories about this and it speaks to their lived experience. Mm. What do parents say to you? Like, I'm wondering whether people either don't know the pervasiveness of it or they somehow or other think it's okay or not so harmful. What's your sense of it when you talk to parents? I think you get both of those experiences. I would say the normalization less so, but then they're the parents turning up. Do you know what I mean? Right, so yeah. they're the yeah. ones clearly who see this as an issue, who want to engage on the topic. I think most of us struggle to comprehend this reality. And I understand why. Like, I don't judge someone who doesn't want to know about this because why would you want to, honestly? Oh. You know, and I'm always drawn back to T.S. Eliot's words when he says, mankind can't bear very much reality. And it's fair enough when you have to think about these things, which comes back to the question of evil and darkness. You know, like this is a really hard thing to not only stare into kind of the, the soul of our society, but then our own souls. And I say that as someone who's looked at pornography, who therefore has contributed to this, who has lined the pockets of the global porn industry and drove exploitation and trafficking. I have to sit with that even now. And I think that's hard. There's a lot of injustices out there where we can point and look at the bad people out there or the bad organizations or corporations or politicians. But this is an issue where I think if we're all honest with ourselves, no matter how loving and faithful we've been, irrespective of what you've chosen to do in your life sexually, we all know that we've not fully embodied love and mutuality and all these other things that we say are essential for safety, for connection, for intimacy. Now, I watched an interview you did with Robert Jensen, who's written a lot about this, and uh, there was a great interview. I'd recommend it to people to watch. And he spoke powerfully about an industry that he, he was very clear about this. It traumatizes women who are involved. And he then made the really sobering point that users of pornography are morally connected to that abuse. Is that an effective argument when it comes to young people? I mean, it was a very powerful point that he made. When you make that case to people, do they start to pay attention? I've had that experience. That was my experience when my friends had come back from Southeast Asia and I learned about human trafficking in my late teens, early 20s. We're hearing that more and more from young men where they say, I don't want to be a patron of this industry. Yeah. 
And so I think for me, it's the ultimate reason that we need to, as a society and as individuals, reject porn and porn culture. Sometimes it is self-interest though. Sometimes it is because it's disordering your own desires, it's affecting your capacity to be sexually intimate, it's affecting your mental health and your participation in things that you say you're committed to, which I'll work with. But there, I think in this younger generation who are interested in things like ethics and social justice and, and fairness, it's like, well, if you want to address all of the greatest horrors in this world from racism to misogyny to exploitation, like have at it, come join us. The global porn industry capitalizes and commodifies all of those things to the most nefarious ends. One of the um, points that, again, Robert Jensen made was people, because people get addicted to pornography and it's so there and it's so available, it's a very hard thing to resist for lots of people. So he was making the point that you don't want to be on your own. You need help. You need sort of support. You need friends around you there's a there's a sort of an honesty required though for that isn't there and are you someone who can see good things happening when groups of people really want to support each other in this endeavor to resist what's such a powerful thing absolutely i love it when either the student asks or one of the teachers will give me a dorothy dixer at the end of my session and say (laughs) say hey dan if there's a boy or girl you know because women are affected by this as well just not to the same rates and that's a conversation for another day in terms of the differences but if someone does want to quit what do they need to do And I kind of, again, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a life coach, I'm not a GP, but I say to them, you've got to get your reason why, which comes back to the ethics question or the self-interest question. And then secondly, it's like to do a bit of a stock take on on your life and, and what you want and what it would look like if you don't address this issue. And what does it give you access to if you are someone who actually masters this, who actually chooses other things that are life giving for themselves. But I always say, and you cannot do it alone. You need people to support you, to be honest with, to be transparent with. And I think there's a sense of you need the relationship for because relationships are good for us. We need that. We need friendship. Uh, it's not to say that that becomes the other person's burden, but we do, in a sense, carry one another's burdens. I don't think it should be your partner's role because a lot of women feel the need to. Mm-hmm. But I think for men in particular, to actually be able to share honestly, to be able to do so where they can actually acknowledge their feelings around this, whether it's guilt, whether it's shame, but whatever that is that's compelling them to say, I want better for my life. And to channel that and to bring each other around to that. And to know that you might have setbacks, you might stumble, but it's again just creating new habits and new desires that actually takes a bit of time. And that's why there's organizations like Reboot Nation that talk about this process and to actually have a community who's supporting you on that. I want to ask you again about consent because you know, we're saying we need something more substantial than just oh, we've got to learn that this only happens if the other person you know, agrees. It seems like the bare minimum here. We need something more substantial. So within the Christian you know, notion of the world, you have a couple of things I think are significant that I want to just mention to you and get your response. But the idea that every person is made in the image of God and therefore, in a sense, is sacred seems significant to me. And also that the person is embodied, that that is essential to who we are, that we we don't just sort of have a body, but we are a body. And so an assault against our bodies is an assault against us as people. Whether people accept those particular things, this is the sort of idea that I'm talking about as something that needs it. We need a sort of foundational idea of what it is to be human here in these sorts of discussions. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I agree with you. And what I think is essential to this is do you see this other person as a full human? with preferences, with desires, 
with hopes, with fears, whatever those things are that make us up, that are our bodies, that are those intangible parts of us. And the thing that I want to challenge for all of us, and yes, it's mainly men that drive this, but it's not just a men's thing, is this idea of entitlement, of this idea of using somebody for your own end. It saddens me because it's like there's this taking or this dominating vision of sexual activity or sexuality. And I think there are better messages and more beautiful messages to tell about what does it actually look like to share of ourselves, to express love with our whole bodies, which I think is so countercultural. And to look at the philosophical underpinnings of where we've landed in terms of sex, to look at like the legacy of Kinsey, where it really is just about genital stimulation and that the person and the desires behind it is almost irrelevant because it's just about genital stimulation, pleasure and orgasm. And it's actually divorced us from our bodies and and also the person who sits within our bodies, as you said, embodiment. And that for me is the tragedy because we actually know people aren't actually enjoying sex that much, which is quite extraordinary in these times, given that it's everywhere and I think that's because we're missing out on this and I hear these tragic stories where people are actually having to watch other things whilst they're having sex with somebody and I don't even like saying that that's sex because I don't think it is sex because I don't think they're actually communing with this other person. Dan you're spending a lot of time going around talking to lots of young people but about pretty heavy subjects tell me about the cracks of light that you encounter as you go about talking about some dark things. I think having agency in this space and helping other people to have agency and to have a voice, to listen to their voices is a really life-giving, affirming opportunity. It gives us resolve to do this work. I think we partner with great schools and communities and faith-based groups who are wanting to do something. So you're meeting other people of goodwill who want to do something. That is life-giving. And what gives me hope is like, I think we've only just started this really big social critique of the role of pornography in driving some of the crises that we are facing as human creatures. And so what gives me hope is like, we still haven't even got the message out there. Now, if you'd said to me, Dan, you've been in every school in this country, every single school kid has heard this message and they're just choosing porn and porn culture, then I'd say that's cause for despair. But we've only just got started. And these critiques coming from even celebrity culture down, like Billie Eilish is on the record unequivocally condemning pornography end of last year. That is huge. That was such a cultural moment lying in the sand. And we're now seeing more and more people speaking up about it. And it's like anything, it gives permission for other people to raise their voice and say, porn's hurt me as a young man, or porn's hurt me as a young woman, or porn's hurt us in our marriage, you know, like all of these opportunities are now being presented to really push back on this and reimagine a vision of intimacy and love and sex and sexuality that is on what we've touched on. Down within the Christian story, Jesus, of course, is the kind of ultimate person and ultimate expression of God and his love. Does this story have anything to say to this question of healthy masculinity particularly? I wonder if you've got any thoughts on that. Absolutely. I I love that as a vision and I love that for us as an example in terms of looking at Jesus and someone who had all the power, who decided to lay it down, who in all of his decisions like preference the others and in particular preference those who are weaker. I think there's something about that. I think there's something to aspire to and and a word that I really resonate with is meekness Mm -hmm. to think, yeah, you, you may have mastery. In different ways, whether it's through your intellect, through your physical strength, through your resources. It's like we all may have strengths or opportunities to control or dominate through whatever we've been given. And then it's like, well, what do you do with that? 
Who do you create space for? Whose voices do you listen to? Who do you invite at the table? And so for me, I, I look to that as our example, as an opportunity to go, how does this translate, not just in a spiritual sense, but also in our relationships? And I would also then argue within the bonds of marriage or, or sexual activities, it's like, what does it look like to prefer the other? This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. Daniel Principer is a youth advocate and educator at Collective Shout. You can check out his and their work at collectiveshout.org. You might be able to request Dan as a speaker. He's out and about and has plenty of energy and a huge task ahead of him. Dan also has a YouTube channel and podcast where he does a series of interviews on reimagining masculinity, and I recommend those. If something in this episode has raised issues for you, you might want to go to 1-800-RESPECT or Men's Referral Service or Lifeline on 13 11 14. We'll put information on those in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Please leave us a rating or review. We love hearing from our listeners. And lately I've been out chatting to people at various events and it's great to meet Life and Faith listeners. Also, write to us at podcast at publicchristianity.org. We'd love your feedback. Next week. The norm right now is to portray evil as something that's exciting and alluring. Then to have Dante be like, actually, what if it's the most boring thing in the world? (laughs) Satan trapped in ice and he can't even move or do anything. What if pursuing pleasure and rebellion, what if it's not actually exciting? (laughs) What if it's just really boring?